There's no more important question a person can ask than how to be made right with God. And when we start asking that question, how can I be made right with God, we usually end up in one of Paul's letters. And the reason why we usually end up in one of Paul's letters is because Paul talked more plainly and and more depth and that more length than just about anybody else in the Bible about how it is that God has made it possible for us to be right with Him. But when we start listening to Paul, when we start following Paul's arguments and reasoning and his uh, explanation, the things he's revealing to us from God about how God has made it possible for us to be right with Him through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul begins to push us outside of his own letters to other parts of the Bible. And the reason why he does that is he wants us to know that when he's preaching about justification by grace through faith, that we're made right with God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, when he tells us that, he wants us to know that that message is not unique to him. He wants us to know that what he's saying is what the whole Bible has been saying all along. And so he wants us to see that what he's preaching in the New Testament is the same thing that was preached in the Old Testament. The same way he's saying we are made righteous by faith in Christ now. That's the same way that people were saved in the Old Testament. As they were saved by grace and through faith, trusting in the promises of God as uh, he prepared for the coming of Jesus the Messiah. So I want you to turn in your Bible with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 4. And we're going to be focusing this morning on verses 6 through 8 of Romans 4. But I'm going, to, I'm going to start reading at the beginning of chapter 4 just to sort of catch us up uh, from where we were last time. Romans chapter 4, I'll read verses 1 through 8. And I want you to see here uh, how Paul uses both the example of Abraham and the example of David to uh, show that the gospel he's preaching, the plan of salvation he's unfolding, is the same plan that God has had from the beginning, even through the Old Testament. We saw that through Abraham last week in verses 1 through 5, and we're going to see it this morning in David in verses 6 through 8. So let me read for us Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, But believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
Now, we saw last week, last time, in Romans 4, 1 to 5, Paul shows us that Abraham, contrary to how many Jews understood Abraham's story, Abraham was not counted righteous before God because of his works, not because of his good deeds. Abraham's not going to heaven because he obeyed God and almost sacrificed Isaac. Abraham's not going to heaven because he obeyed God and circumcised his son and all the male members of his household. Abraham is righteous before God because he believed God's promise before he did any good works. That's Paul's point. He makes that point from Genesis 15, 6, which he quotes there in verse 3. So he's made that point, right? I'm saying now today you're justified when you believe by faith, right? And Abraham was saved the same way. Now why add David? Why bring up David and add him? Because in verse 6, after he's discussed Abraham, he says, just as David also speaks. So why add David to the equation. What's the significance of David? Well, David, of course, was the greatest king, arguably, that Israel ever had. Uh, Despite his faults and shortcomings, he was certainly the first good king that Israel had. Saul was not a great king. So David was the first great king that Israel had. And God made a special covenant with David. He promised David that from his line would come a son who would sit on David's throne and reign over David's kingdom forever. We call that the Davidic covenant, the covenant God made with David. So from David's line is going to come the Messiah, the Savior King, who's going to bring God's kingdom into the world. We know now that that's Jesus. So David was a great king. God made a great promise to David. And David was also a prophet. That's probably not how you normally think about David, right? We normally think of him as a king and as a warrior, the guy who slew Goliath. But the scripture is also clear that David is a prophet who spoke by the Spirit of God. David says this about himself in a, a song, a psalm he wrote that's recorded in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23, verse 1 and 2. It says, now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And then here's what David says. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. So that, that's a good summary of who David is. He's the one God raised up, the one God anointed, the one who wrote all so many of the Psalms we have uh, in the Bible, and he was one who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, who spoke by the Spirit of God when he wrote those Psalms. Jesus affirms that as well in Matthew twenty-two forty-three, Jesus quotes one of David's Psalms, Psalm 110, and he says, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, or speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? And Peter, in Acts 2, verse 30, when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, He refers to David as a prophet. So he quotes one of David's psalms and he says, look, David's a prophet. So here's how that helps us understand this psalm, what he was speaking about. So Paul brings up David to testify in favor of the gospel that he's preaching because David was a significant figure in Israel's history right up there with Moses and Abraham. And also because David is one who was inspired by God. That's why the Psalms are included in the Bible. 
And because David is inspired by God, when Paul quotes from one of David's psalms in verse 7 and 8, we know it's not merely David's opinion that Paul is quoting, but it's God's word, God's truth that Paul is bringing to bear uh, on this argument that he's making, that he's trying to persuade us and convince us about the gospel of the gift of God's righteousness to all who believe. So that's why he brings up David. And here's why he adds David to Abraham. Because Abraham by himself is a heavy hitter. right? I mean, you quote Abraham, you're talking about the, the sort of founder, so to speak, the forefather of the Jews, the first one that God set apart and said, you and your offspring are going to be my people, going to be my children. So why add David to that? What does David bring to the table that Abraham doesn't? There are a couple of things. One thing that David brings to the table that Abraham doesn't is that David lived after the law. And the reason why that's significant is because when Paul says, look, Abraham was saved by faith. Just like I'm saying today, we are saved by faith. Somebody could step in and say, Okay, Paul, I I agree with you. Abraham was saved by faith. It's hard to argue with that. Genesis 15, 6 says that. But that was before God gave the law to Moses. Abraham lived way before Moses. So maybe that's the way God saved people before the law came. But now that the law has come, we have to keep the law in order to be righteous with God. Abraham was counted righteous by faith before the law, granted. But now that we have the law... You can't, keep the, you can't be righteous if you don't keep the law. What's Paul going to say to that? He brings up David. David lived well after the law. Right? David is a man who loved the law, who wanted to keep God's law, but failed to keep God's law. And so David, when he speaks of the same way of salvation that Abraham's story tells us of, that Paul is now telling us of, David is a testimony from the Old Testament that this is how God saved even during the era of the law. God, even under the law, was saving people by faith and not by works. And Paul brings David in to bear witness to that. That's the first thing David adds. The second thing David adds, and this is not very flattering to David, but it's just true. David was a more notorious sinner than Abraham was. Right? Abraham was a sinner, no doubt. Right? He lied about his wife. He uh, didn't do what he should have done in that whole matter with uh, Hagar. Right? So Abraham was not a spotless man. He was not a sinless man. He was not a perfect man. He was a man who trusted God, but he was a man who sinned. David, though, sinned more seriously. David committed adultery. David tried to cover it up. David uh, had the woman's husband, Uriah, murdered in battle to try to cover up his sin. And David did that long after he should have known better. So David is a more notorious sinner than Abraham was. And so when uh, David says, this is the way that God has dealt with me, this is the way that God has saved me, 
Paul is adding further testimony to what he says in verse 5, which is that God justifies the ungodly. Because there were people who were saying, yeah, well, of course Abraham's counted righteous before God. He was a pretty good guy. He did a lot of good things. Well, he did do some good things, but that's not why he was justified. And to make that point really plain, I'll bring up David, who, yeah, did some good things, but also did some really terrible things. And yet he was still counted righteous before God because he believed and God justifies the ungodly who believe. So when Paul calls David and Abraham to witness, right, to to bear testimony, this is how God saves his people. This is God's plan. This is how God works. He does that not to make us feel more distant from God's salvation. Like, whoo, he saved David and Abraham that way, but those guys are, I mean, they're like up there on the pedestal. That doesn't help me. I don't know that God's going to save me that way because I can't measure up to those guys. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is, hey, these guys that you elevate and look up to, They were ungodly just like you. They were sinners just like you, in need of grace just like you and me. We're saved by faith just like you and me. Not by their works, not because of what they did, but because they trusted God. And if God saved them that way, He will save you that way if you will trust Him too. That's why Paul brings David into this. right? So verse 6, he says, Just as David... And what is David going to say? Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now that's kind of a mouthful, right? And we sum that idea up with the word justification, right? That you're justified by faith. The word justification means to be counted righteous. It's not a a word that we use a whole lot, and certainly not this way, but we do use it some, right? We talk about whenever uh, somebody thinks we've done something wrong, or somebody kind of looks at us askance like, why did you do that? Then we start giving excuses, we say, to justify ourselves. What we mean is we're trying to say, I was in the right, right? So like if you get pulled over for running a red light in town, the cop pulls you over, it comes up to the window, and you say, Look, I know I ran the red light, but my wife's in labor. We're on our way to the hospital. We got to go. You know, you're saying, I had, I had justification for running that line. I had a good reason. I was in the right, even though technically I broke the law. We're justifying ourselves, right? When Paul uses the word justification, it's similar idea, but different, right? Because justification that Paul is talking about here is not us saying we're in the right, It's God saying, even though you are not in the right, I will count you as though you are. Even though you are ungodly, I will count you righteous. Even though you are a sinner, I will count you as though, I will treat you as though you have not sinned. That's what justification means. And he says that God does this, Apart from works, there at the end of verse 6, right? David speaks of this blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness. He says you're righteous apart from works. So you're righteous not because you've done righteous things, but in spite of the fact that you've done unrighteous things. 
That's the doctrine of justification by faith. And that's what Paul is trying to help us understand in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 5. Right? That we would know, that we would believe, that we would be certain that the way God makes us right with Him has nothing to do with what we do, has everything to do with what Jesus has done and whether or not we trust Him. That's where our righteousness comes from. Not from ourselves, not even from our faith, but comes from Jesus, whom we are connected to by faith. And so when we trust Him, we get His righteousness. And Paul is saying that David talks about this in Psalm 32. So that's how I read that psalm earlier in the service. He quotes that psalm in verses 7 and 8 right here. He just quotes a portion of it. But it's enough to make his point. That justification, being counted righteous, apart from works, is something that David spoke about. Now, when Paul quoted the story of Abraham back in verse 3, it was really obvious that Moses was talking about the same thing in Genesis 15 as Paul is talking about because they use a lot of the same words. Right? Verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You got your three key words there. Believed, counted, and righteous. Paul is using those words all the time. And he says, you look at Genesis 15, 6, you find the same three words used together the same way that I'm using it. It's talking about the exact same thing. When we look at the quote in verses 7 and 8, we don't find all three of those words. We don't find the word righteousness. We don't uh, find anything about believing either. But we do find the word counted, or count, at the end of verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So that's our clue that David's talking about the same thing. But David is talking about the same thing from a slightly different angle. That's why the words are different. Genesis 15.6 was talking about how God counts us righteous, credits to us God's righteousness as a gift... And David is talking about the other side of that coin. Right? If you are counted righteous apart from works, you know what else you need? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Right? This has been... Uh, I, I remember years ago trying to work through this and trying to figure out how does this quote from David fit? And things I've read and heard, all these other people have helped me see how this fits together. And I, I want you to see it as well. If you are justified by faith apart from works, you need forgiveness of sin. Right? I mean, that's just, that's just the logical piece of the puzzle that goes there, right? That's, the, that's the, the, the other part of the equation. And that's what David speaks about in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's basically three ways of saying the same thing. David says, you know who's blessed? You know who is happy? You know who has the favor of God upon him? Not the person without sin, because I don't know anybody like that. Except for Jesus, and David didn't get to meet Jesus yet when he wrote this. I don't know anybody like that. But here's 
what I know about who is blessed, the person that God pours His blessings upon, it's the man not who has no lawless deeds, because I don't know any of those, but the man whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Not the man who has no sin, but the man whose sins have been covered, who've been dealt with, they've been atoned for. The man who's blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. He doesn't hold his sin against him any longer. The man whom God has forgiven. Now, is David talking about his own experience here, or is he just talking sort of in theory? Right? Because that would make a difference. Is David just saying, I think God's going to save people this way at some point? I think, I think this is how God's going to bless people down the road? Or is this a blessing that David tasted himself? From the two verses that Paul quotes, you can't really tell. Right? David doesn't say anything about himself. There's nothing personal in verse 7 and 8. But if you go to Psalm 32... And you keep reading. These are the first two verses of Psalm 32. If you keep reading, you realize pretty quickly that this is personal for David. David has experienced this himself. He goes on to say in verse 3, For when I kept silent, that is, about his sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So you hear how many times there he says, I, me, my. Right? Now it's personal. And he's talking about his own experience when he had clearly sinned against the Lord and he tried to hide it. He didn't want to confess it. He didn't want to own up to it. He didn't want to turn from it. And David says, when I kept silent about my sin, when I tried to hide my sin from God, I felt like I was under a curse. It was wearing me out. Most of us have probably been there at some point or another. You know you've done wrong. You know you need to bring it before the Lord and confess and ask for forgiveness. And you don't want to do it and you can't sleep and you lose your appetite and you're distracted at work and you're a a mess until you get it right. Right? Ever been there? You don't have to raise your hand, but I know some of you have, right? I know I have. And David, David's saying, when I tried to hide my sin... It was like I was under a curse. My strength was dried up. My bones wasted away. I was groaning day and night. I was miserable. And so finally I decided it's not worth it. There's a better way. And so I acknowledged my sin to you. I confessed my sin. In other words, I did not cover my iniquity. I asked you to cover it. You to forgive it. You to deal with it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what did God do? He says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is also part of how we are made right with God. Uh, This is why I often emphasize um, not just faith, but repentance. Right? Repentance and confession of sin. Because 
they're also two sides of the same coin. Just like being counted righteous and having your sins forgiven are two sides of the same coin. If you get counted righteous, you've got to have your sins forgiven. Right? And when you have your sins forgiven, God counts you righteous. Just as those two go together, so do repentance and faith. Repentance and confession of sin are not extra things you have to do to be made right with God. They're just what you do when you trust Jesus. When you don't trust God to deal with your sin, when you don't trust God to make you righteous by grace apart from your works, you don't want to own up to your sin. You're trying to fix it yourself. You're trying to deal with it yourself. But when you recognize, I can't be righteous, I can't deal with my own sin, I can't atone for this, I can't handle this, I can't fix this, But God has made a way through Jesus. Jesus has borne on the cross all the sin, past, present, and future, of all who will trust in Him. He's paid the penalty fully, and He has promised that anybody who trusts in Him will have their sins wiped out and His righteousness given to them as a free gift. If I will just own up to this... If I would just confess it, if I would just ask for mercy, if I would just come before God and say, I'm a wreck, I'm a mess, I have sinned, would you forgive me, would you make me new, would you make me yours? He'll do it. And then, though I've done nothing but trust Him, that burden, that misery, that guilt, that weight is lifted on off of my shoulders by hands much stronger than mine. That's what Paul is pushing us toward. And he's saying, David experienced it. Abraham experienced it. I'm pleading for you to experience it. Because I want you too to be counted righteous by grace through faith in Christ. And he's telling us, If you are a Christian, this is true of you. Whether you would have explained it this way or not, whether you feel like you understand this fully or not, the Bible tells us that more was going on the moment you turned to Christ than you and I probably had any idea of. We spend the rest of our Christian lives understanding in more depth what happened when Jesus saved us. If you had to know how all of it works before you got saved, nobody ever gets saved, right? But after you're saved and you start to hunger for the Scripture and you start to seek God more and you start to learn more, you begin to understand, when I trusted Christ, not only was I forgiven, but God declared me righteous. Not only have all my sins been wiped out, all my sins been atoned for, all of them fully paid by Jesus, But now, I am positively righteous, holy, in God's sight because of Jesus. Because of what He did for me. And if you're not a Christian, this is what God is offering. This is what we are proclaiming. This is what we want you to hear. So many times what people think is, people want me to become a Christian so that I will follow all these rules. I have to sign up to you know, be a Christian, and then there's all these don't do this, and don't do that, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. That's not the heart of Christianity. If you get this, if you get that Jesus died, 
to pay for your sin and to make you righteous so that if you trust Him, you can have new life in Him. If you get that, you're going to want to do what He wants you to do and not do what He wants you to do. You're not going to do it perfectly, but you're going to want to try. But that's not the heart of it. The heart of it is, I am broken and I need Jesus. I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. I am unrighteous and I need to be righteous. So I can be in fellowship with God. So I can have the kind of life God created me to have. Life in His presence. Life in fellowship with Him. Life in fellowship with others. That only comes through this gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And Paul is saying this is how it's always been. How it's always going to be. It's not new. The only thing that's new about it is that Jesus has finally come now. But this is what they were waiting for in the Old Testament. This is what we are uh, grateful for and looking back toward now that we're on the other side of, of the cross. But it's the same message. It's the same hope. It's the same salvation. It's the same grace. It's the same faith. It's the same. Same Savior. And this is what God offers to all. And this is what God 